church say amen. Amen. Bless you, Brother Cobra. Let's give God some praise again for singing of the word. Would you join me in the book of Acts, chapter 16, and just verse 25? In fact, you really don't even have to stand. It's just the first three words, Acts chapter 16, verse 25, but about midnight. That's it. You can be seated. Amen. But about midnight. In his book entitled Faith in the Face of the Empire, Mitrit Rahib, a Palestinian Christian, provides an insight into how the empire develops its theologies, policies, and tactics, and then refine them and pass them on to other empires to maintain and strengthen the empirical presence of power and subjection. He says, I quote, empires are always about control. Control is seen as a necessary to secure the movement of people related to the empire, which includes its soldiers, the routes around the city, the watchtowers, the military fortresses, and checkpoints, which are nothing more than vivid expressions of their obsession with security. Empires do not control only the native people to which they rule. They also work to ensure that visitors encountering the land and its native people are controlled by their hand as well. For example, in 2010, Tony Campolo, the evangelical preacher, paid a visit to Bethlehem for a theological conference and upon arrival at the Tel Aviv airport was met by Israelis officials who told him they would like to invite him for a cup of coffee in their offices and have a chat. For almost four hours, he was questioned about his decision to attend a conference in Bethlehem, and they further wanted to know, how do you know these radical Palestinian theologians? This is what they describe as VIP treatment. Dr. Campolo shared his story with his Palestinian host. His host replied, welcome to Palestine, where the empire rules with the kind of schizophrenia. An American woman also attending the conference then interrupted by asking, how then shall we respond to the Israelis at the airport when questioned about our visit? What exactly should we say? Dr. Campolo replied, I wish I could tell you what the angel told the Magi after visiting Jesus, basically showing them another route that was not controlled by the Roman soldiers. But unfortunately, Israel now controls all roads, all airports, and all borders. And by the way, the invitation 
drink a cup of coffee by the Arab of Israeli authorities is nothing more than a political toad word for interrogation. But if you know your Bible, the same VIP treatment was extended to the Magi's by Herod when they came from the east to see Jesus in Bethlehem. Herod invited the Magi's for a cup of coffee to ascertain why were they traveling to Bethlehem and how did you know about the newborn child, Matthew 2. Divine intervention in the form of the but conjunction twice navigated Jesus away from the empire, Herod, who destined to destroy the child-born king of the Jews, informing Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt to search for or to protect from the search by Herod for the child to destroy him, stay there, until I tell you otherwise, Matthew 2 and 13. Joseph flees, which is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 and 18, but then an angel comes back again and tells Joseph, when Herod was dead, now take the child and go into the land of Egypt. But, says verse 19 of Matthew 2, Joseph heard, that Achilles was reigning instead of his father Herod and he was afraid to go to Israel. So he went to the regions of Galilee and resided in a city called Nazareth that it might further be fulfilled that Jesus might be called a Nazarene. The empire is either not aware or refuses to recognize the divine interrupting power of God when God imports the conjunction, but. This little conjunction, this little word, small to us, but significant in the English language, it's a dramatic word, a word that gives a cue in the story that something is about to change. When it appears, the plot thickens and sometimes but indicates the opposite of stream, extreme of the human mood and the human action. And on the one extreme, we have what I call the yet but fellowship, where people spend their life on a fence and are quick to discern contrary considerations to any line of action so they are condemned to remain spiritually in neutral. They say, I believe in peace, but I'd like to do that, but I believe in prayer, but I know God can, but. On the other extreme or the other side, should I say, there's another subtle but, which is happily, happens to be a thrill of life in itself. And that's the thrill, I think. We meet here in the book of Acts for one of the exalting things about Acts is that the story goes on when by reasonable logic it ought to come to a conclusion. It should be done with. And again and again there appears to be a divine and human rebuttal to the most overwhelming argument that we can pose. Why does the story continue to be? The empire believes that it has the power to end everybody's story. 
And that is the argument that were made by the authorities who imprisoned both Paul and Silas in Philippi. They concluded that no but conjunction could penetrate their prison doors and their barred windows and their physical security of a guard outside the cell. In fact, anyone reading this story of Acts 16 and you exercise just typical logic would conclude that Paul and Silas' imprisonment might very well be the end of their story. But God applies punctuation marks according to God's will. God decides whether or not your experience gets a period, if it gets a comma, or if it gets a semicolon, or if it gets a question. And when I read this story, as Luke conveys Paul's words, Paul might argue with us this morning that I personally, says Paul, placed a comma there that you, as the reader, might pause and ask the question, what's next? I also might argue, says Paul, that you can place a semicolon there where it says at midnight or about midnight, myself and Silas were praying and singing hymns unto God. I ask that you might put a semicolon there as well, that you might stop and take a deep breath and wonder what will God do with his servant's wall or back pressed totally against the wall. Back Paul says, I ask that you do both. Take a pause and then take a deep breath only because something is about to change in the story. What I like about this story is the midnight ushering of the but interruption. The scene is set around the midnight moment and remember, midnight is a representation of darkness and darkness exercises its prohibiting power and at midnight, my sight and your sight suffers from limited distance. At midnight, my mobility and your mobility is limited and we can only move so far as we can see. At midnight, there's a potential that you and I might be in the dark moment alone. And at midnight, our enemies are often hidden where they cannot be seen, thus increasing their potentiality to suffer us with an ambush. But at midnight, depression might further stir the pot and set in into our mentality. At midnight, fear arises to a new level because we now are encountering the unknown. Yet, midnight can be a point of deliverance because the position time exists between yesterday's troubles and tomorrow's triumphants. At midnight, Paul experienced the divine punctuation in his story. But Paul and Silas, in a place of incarceration, they're in prison, they're in a dungeon, they have chains, they are in darkness. In fact, 
Nothing is new that is imposed by the empirical power of the empire who think that this condition will not only quiet the oppressed, but will also suck the life out of them. But might we add, you've been there, I've been there. In fact, you might even be there right now. Midnight is where God places a but punctuation in Paul's story, and yet Paul is not alone. Silas is not alone. There are some witnesses that can stand and testify that in your midnight of life, God interrupted with a but conjunction where everybody else was beginning to proclaim that your end is obviously in sight. Can anybody testify that I thought that the end was inevitable and that about midnight, God moved my heart and my spirit with the assurance that a but conjunction is about to continue my story. In fact, God gives a but around midnight for several reasons. Number one, it's a signal that God is about to start a new chapter in your life. Notice that the previous chapter of Paul and Silas' journey is marked by pain. They have been beaten severely. They are not only now incarcerated, but they are chained where they are. And the text doesn't say it, but I might suggest they are also probably going to be without reasonable ration all by the empire to reduce their possibility of surviving the adverse moment. But notice that the previous chapter is really nothing more than a mark of transition. I know you may have thought that because you are in the midnight of your journey that it would maybe bring a close to your journey. In fact, God might be allowing a period to be placed at the end of that chapter so that people will think that your journey has come to the conclusion. In fact, the empire and the imperial power thought that the jail would pronounce conclusion on Paul. But, says the text, around midnight, Paul and Silas was praying and they praised, pronounced an extension that God would do something as a result of their prayer and their praise. Don't ever enter into prayer without a belief that something is going to come out of that prayer. And don't ever express a praise unless you are confident that your praise is with sincerity and that you are thanking God because things will not remain the same. Somehow, some way, God is going to take my prayer and my praise and although it may be in a dark moment, God knows how to bring light where darkness abides. They did the same thing thinking that Jesus on that Friday was going to be pronounced in conclusion that he no longer would have the power to sustain. However, just as he did in Paul and Silas, God placed a butt in Jesus' moment at Calvary just to change Friday to Sunday and to move Jesus to a new chapter in his own journey. 
I want you to know that although it may seem that you're stuck in the painful chapter of your life now, be patient because God is not going to place a period there, but I got a sneaky suspicion that when God imparts the but factor, when he moves on that injunction, he's doing nothing more than turning the page to entertain the next chapter that's about to come in your life. And what happened in the previous chapter was maybe that's a trial to test and see if you can still praise me even though you are chained and incarcerated in misery and in strife. Do you only thank God when all is well and when the sun is shining? Or do you have the spiritual fortitude to bless the Lord at all times and allow his praise to forever be in your mouth? I got another suspicion that there are some witnesses in the house this morning who can testify that I know what it means to be in a similar situation like Paul and Silas and all I could do was reside to prayer and praise and to trust that God would turn the page in my own life. In fact, I'm here to testify that I'm here today, I'm alive, I'm well, I'm strengthened, I'm in my right mind, I got all together, my life is fluid, all because in prayer and praise, God put a but where the enemy thought he would put a period and God turned the page that I might experience another journey. All because God is creating a new chapter in your life. Let's go back to Calvary for a moment. Can you not see them moving around the foothill of the cross? And there were those who of course was critical expressing their opinion. He saved others. Let's now see if he can save himself. There are others who said, I'm glad he's dead finally, that we can now get on to business as usual, not understanding that in his own death, he was not just dying for those who cared about him, but he was also dying for those who hated him to the core. And yet Jesus, as the Psalm said, could have came off the cross, could have called legions of angels to come and administer to him while he was on the cross to remove him from the cross, but he stayed there. He stayed there until death got tired of dying and he stayed there until hell had to release all of his agents and he stayed there until salvation was completed all because God was turning the page on Jesus' life that you may have last saw him at the cross on Friday. But look out because when you turn the page Sunday morning is about to approach and that might be what God is saying in somebody's life this morning I know when you left work on Friday and you came all day through Saturday that it looked like that you were stuck on the cross but you're in the house of God this morning because Sunday morning says all power is given unto you that means that God says I pose in your life a resurrection moment because where others said it's the end I said yeah but yeah but they may have sinned but they may have come short but they may have fallen short of my glory but 
They may not be the best, but they may not be doing all I want them to do, but, and I'm so glad this morning that God puts a but at the conjunction of my name every single time. I may not be what I ought to be, but I'm grateful that I'm not what I used to be. And every time I fall short of God's glory, thank goodness that when Satan comes to accuse me before the brethren, Jesus steps forth and says, yeah, daddy, but they're under my blood, but he's been renewed by my power, but he's been washed in the blood of the lamb, but his name now is written in the lamb's book of life. And I'm so glad I got a but praise on the inside of me. Lock me away, but I'm still going to praise him. Hang me up in the corner, but I'm still going to celebrate him. Take it away from me, but I'm still going to bless God at all times. He may not come when I want him, but he's always on time. Can I get a witness up in this house this morning? God is simply signaling that he's starting a new chapter in your life. But about midnight. There's a second thing that I think God is doing, and that is that the midnight hour is a signal that God is about to infuse new life, new power into your life to inspire someone else who's around you. When you read this story, it says that it was about midnight, not only for Paul and Silas, but read verse 25 real closely. It's also midnight for the other prisoners and the guards who were experiencing midnight in their life as well. Since Paul and Silas were unable to sleep, they were suffering from severe beating, yet notice their internal spirit found an upbeat in a low to no beat situation. God but signaled a change and a new chapter in the life of others who needed a change all because verse 25 clause B says the prisoners were listening to them. Somebody in this house today needs to understand that God <coughs> infused a but in your life through your prayer and your praise because somebody on the other side of the sanctuary or somebody in the pew next to you, behind you or before you, God's got somebody who's likewise in the midnight of their own journey and they are locked down and locked out of peace that surpasses all understanding. Listen to what the text says. They were listening to Paul and Silas pray and praise about midnight incarcerated locked down, wondering among themselves, how you going to pray and praise when you are in the darkest moment of your life? The empire, the power has incarcerated you. They have locked you away. In fact, they have thrown away the key enough 
to begin the process of not only eliminating you, but causing you to feel that you are all out of hope and aspirations. Yet, Paul and Silas praise and the other prisoners are listening to them, wanting to know how can you do that when in my life it's so empty, it's so void, it feels so powerless, and I want to know what can I do, look at that text closely, to get what you got. That's the reason why when we come to worship, we must never harness praise because praise not only sets us free, but if somebody else knows my story, they may find inspiration in my story. And as a result, God can use my praise to help them recognize, to release themselves, that they may be free to praise as well. And when asked, how do you pray and praise when you're in a dark moment, we can suggest that God provides a conjunction of but, even though the moment says, shh. Because Jesus, moving among the crowd, had inspired his disciples to give God glory. The Pharisees wanted to know why would they make such noise when the moment doesn't require it. And Jesus responds by saying, I tell you what, if these who know my grace and who know my mercy and who know my power and who know my provision, if these who have been blessed every day by my favor to be alive and well, by my blessing to be able to be secured where they are, if these don't praise me, I will use an inanimated object to cry out and to thank God. In fact, Isaiah says that when the entire creation is silent, God blows his spirit through the trees and the trees clap their hands together to give God glory because God is saying through Isaiah, if you don't praise me, I'll get somebody else who will, who recognize, says the tree. I know that all my life comes from a God who operates underneath the soil and who allows the moisture to give me strength and it runs up through the trunks and come all through the vines and I'm able to give leaves the way they are and I can clap my hands because I don't mind telling the whole creation I serve a God who sustains me and who keeps me and who watches over me and I think there's somebody in the house this morning who recognize you serve a God that you got to praise when you come to worship in fact you ain't got to be in church you bless God wherever you are sometimes you just ride down the road and it just hits you by all of the goodness that God has given you sometimes you're just walking through the grocery store and you think about those who don't have and yet God has enabled your life to be able to pick anything you want off of the shelf. Sometimes you just be riding through the course of the day and your mind just drifts off as to how God has kept you and watched over your children and watched over your spouse and watched over your life. You think about how those all 
around you have died from sickness and disease and yet you're still here and you're still able to give God glory. You got to do that because somebody is next to you and they need to see that God is still in the butt business. There it is right here in the text. God intervened in a midnight hour to bring about a butt in the life of Paul and Silas all because you find this, you may find this hard to believe, but all of the tragic misbehaving of the empirical powers treatment on Paul was done purposely that he would bring him to this point, check this out, not to celebrate actually how good God has been to Paul, but that those who were listening, who were incarcerated, and who didn't know who God was, would get to know him through the life of Paul that they might see in Paul and Silas a hope that they never realized before. That's the reason why in my family, I, I, I told you about my uncle who's just the biggest drunk of the world, but I tell you what, I love him and I like him because he finds inspiration in the fact that I encourage him every single time I see him. I know he might be intoxicated. He probably don't understand a single word that I'm saying. But then I might have to take that back because when he gets sober, he reminds me, thank you for not putting me down like the rest of the family. I'm just trying to tell you where your darkness might be is where God is using you to infuse new power into your life that somebody else around you might be inspired by who you are. Closing story, then I'm done. Lucille West, my grandmama, didn't realize it until later on in my life and she was long gone into eternity. I remember seeing her in the morning stand before the picture window washing dishes and getting food ready for breakfast and she would always be singing the hymns. But I also remember at night seeing her kneel down beside her bed always with her head, her head between her hands calling on the name of the Lord, which eventually won a level of influence in my own life. Now I pray and now I meditate based off of what I remember Lucille West used to do when I was a small child. I'm just trying to tell you, when you look at someone that God is using and that somebody just might be you, even though you're in a prison cell, even though you're incarcerated, even though you're in a dark moment, God still is pumping light through you that somebody else might be inspired by your story. And all of us this morning, I believe, are inspired by somebody's story in the past who demonstrated before us that when you wait on God, and notice what Paul and Silas did, they did not try to fight to get out of jail. They actually stayed where they were and entered into prayer and praising. I believe, deeply convinced, that if God brought us here, I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. That's what I think. I think they realized Paul, 
said to Silas, Silas says to Paul, do you think he'd bring us through all that we've come through to this point just to leave us? No, they said to one another. And here come God interjecting but in their story. But they not only prayer and praised themselves in the night, but there were prisoners who were listening to them. I'm convinced that the reason why Paul later in all of his letters to the churches would advocate the importance of one another is because you never know who you're actually influencing in worship. You have no idea who God is moving in your direction in worship. In fact, have you noticed that in your most harsh moment when the pain is the greatest, that's the time when it appears sometimes that people want to hear from you, that they may gather not only the wisdom that you have of the moment, but that you become the prophetic mantle that God uses to bring relief to somebody who otherwise would remain silent in their misery. God does that. God uses us in peculiar ways and by interjecting the but conjunction, God causes us to have to pause and take a moment to take a deep breath and say, okay, God, what are you going to do next? And I tell you, it's frightening. It's very frightening when you are at that space when you are vulnerable before God and all you can say is, okay God, okay, God, what are you going to do next? What's the next move in this equation? And then God moves. See, read the rest of the story. God moves to the point where the rest of the listeners, says the text, they were listening, but watch what God does next. Suddenly, says verse 26, an earthquake occurred. The writer of Hebrews says that we have to remember that God specializes in the shaking of the foundation. And here comes God in Paul and Silas in that dark moment with his butt shaking the prison. And notice in shaking the prison, he not only releases everybody from their darkness, but there's one person in mind. A prison God, says verse 27, that's awakened out of his sleep. And in awakening out of his sleep, he comes to recognize that the doors to which the empirical power has given him the empire, the anointing to protect, he recognized I no longer have the power to protect it. That's God's way of trying to tell not only the empire, but those who serve the empire. You may run for a while, but you can't run forever because my power will stop you when I need the time to stop you. He shakes the prison and the prison door are open but he did it to awaken one prison guard because remember the authorities told them put Paul and Silas in the best secured spot that you got and guard them this one guard when he awoke he knew 
that this is it. This is the end of my story. Watch this. This is, the end. This is it. I've got no more life. This is it. They have escaped. In fact, the only recourse I have is suicide. And Paul said, not suicide, but survival. As he goes to kill himself, Paul says, hold up. We are all here. We haven't gone anywhere. And when you read that story closely, I'm talking about how God uses punctuation points. Notice when you read that story closely, when Paul tells that God, we are all here, we haven't gone anywhere, there's an exclamation point at the end of his sentence. Who puts an exclamation point at the end of a sentence to tell somebody, we ain't going nowhere, we all here. That's Paul's way of saying I am where I am because God has used me to bring salvation to your house and I'm happy that God has made me the venue to do so and I'm celebrating. That's why there's an exclamation point at the end. I'm excited, says Paul, because where you thought you needed to die, God has brought you life. And when you read the story, when Paul says, do yourself no harm, we are all here. It says he called for lights and he rushed in trembling and fell down for Paul and says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And your life and my life is nothing but an evangelistic tool in the hand of God. Once he has redeemed us to bring someone else to redemption. The most glorious question that could ever be asked you is, what must I do to be saved? And look what Paul says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just believe in him. And not only shall you be saved, but your whole household. Mm -hmm. Now, if you rush through that story, you'll miss the prophetic that's implied in between the lines. Because if salvation is personal, how then can saving him save the rest of his family? Remember I told you about that word influence and go back to verse 25 in the end and the rest, the prisoners were listening to them. Could it be that Paul says that in seeing you redeemed, the rest of your family who know your background, they know your history. They know your arrival to church was all a show. They know the reality of who you really are. Break it down, man. But I believe Shirley Caesar's right. When you encounter Jesus, you can never be the same. That's right. I believe this man encountered Jesus through listening to Paul, and his life was never the same. In fact, he went back. And I believe in doing so, look what the text says. The text says uh, in verse 32 that Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him together with everybody who was in his house. 
What did this man do? I believe this man, when he heard that he was alive, when he heard that Paul and Silas were still there, when they told him you must be saved, I believe he said, you got to come home with me. You got to come home with me and you've got to help me introduce Jesus to the rest of my family. And read the story. The story says in verse 33 that he took them that very night of the hour and he washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. God infuses life in you to influence someone who never knew the privilege of hospitality. Look what he does. The wounds that he probably helped inflict on Paul and Silas, he washed them. And my mind runs back to the story, and then I'm done, the story of the Amish several years ago who took the young man who shot up their children and not only forgave him, but expressed their love to them because of who God was in their life. I don't know about you, but the folk that I've wounded, I'm not sure I got the fortitude to be able to go back and help heal them. I, I, I know your spirituality says something different to you, but I'm just being flat out honest with you. It's going to take me a while to adjust because looking at the wound reminds me of what I have done. But then grace. See, grace underscored looking beyond the fault and seeing the need. They saw, he saw the need to heal Paul and Silas and in doing so, he took them home and what does Paul does? He baptizes him. Paul says, now you need to be able to declare a public declaration. That's the reason why we baptize before people so that we can have a public declaration that this is a new person in Jesus Christ, dying to the old and arising to the new. And here's what he does. He takes them home and he's hospitable by sharing a meal. Look at the text says in verse 34. He brought them into the house set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. But about midnight. How can so much come out of midnight? You may think that midnight is restricted to darkness by way of pain. But I'm here to tell you, you'll be surprised what happens when God gets a hold of a midnight. When God imposes the conjunction of making a change and put a but there, where everyone else has come to the conclusion that this is the end of the story, God, God does something different. Here's what Soren Kierkegaard said. You are not aware that there comes a midnight hour when everyone must unmask. You know what that means? Isn't it funny how in the daytime, among others, we look one way, but at midnight, 
when there's nobody but me and the Lord. I'm unmasked. I unmask because I'm too ashamed to let you know how I look beneath the mask in the public. Because you and I will be critical of one another. Isn't that funny how we're critical of each other yet both of us got the same looking scars? Or they may have different dimensions, but they're the same scars. Same scars. And yet before God, I can unmask. In fact, I don't have to do it. God, unmask me. Just take off the facade that I might not only reveal to you who I am, which you already know, but that I might reveal to myself. Hurting people hurt people. They don't have a choice because they're living behind the mask. And those who heard Paul and Silas praying and singing were living behind a mask. And yet, their praise and their prayer released them. That's why we can never be critical of somebody else's story. You don't know. You don't know how God has written his story in their story. In fact, all of us should have continuous buts in our language. It should be just here and there, every now and no, every day. It's a but. Okay, you know what I mean. Every day you ought to say, you know what? I probably, based on what I did yesterday, don't deserve to be here, but. Based on my evaluation at work, probably don't deserve to have my job, but. Based on the way that I treat my children, even though I'm biologically attached to them, but. Haven't been the best mate, but. No, I haven't been the best disciple, but. All of us should have continuous buts. That's God's use of their conjunctions. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in his mercy, saved us. And that's why I'm with Paul and Silas. I got you. I celebrate because God has done some but stuff all the way in my life and you know what I ain't alone he's he, he's done it in yours too so much so that we should never allow darkness to reign but celebrate that we might bring light so that those who are around us who are trapped in those dark moments can see that you can praise God and light will come in. I really believe, I really believe that many of our situations is all about our own attitude. 
Our attitude will determine the altitude, how high we will go in that thing. And I really believe if we look at it negatively and with a dangerous eye, then that's what it's going to be. But if I look at it with possibilities and with progression and with hope and desire and with an intentionality to make a difference, something has got to change. If it doesn't change, at least I'm going to change. Thank you, Lord, for Calvary and what Jesus did there. 